This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, how's it going? It's Crystal sitting here just wondering about what you're wondering about. What are you doing? How are you? Um, I moved into season two with crystals. I just did it. I uh, didn't make a big announcement. I won't be releasing one a week. Um, it's a layered situation. You know, originally when COVID hit, my podcast space became my wife's workspace because of income. I'm out of work. Uh, I'm so sorry if you are too. It's very stressful. And then I tried to record over the phone and I just hate the audio quality. I do have some in the bank that I will eventually release. It's hard to do it over the phone. I miss the connection with the guests. I miss looking in their eyes, but darn it, like we do as humans, I'm trying to evolve. I'm trying to be better. So this is officially my first one that I recorded via Zoom. So please bear with the sound, especially at the beginning. My guest, Damon, ah, absolutely incredible. I'm not going to say much except that we need more Damons in this darn world. Uh, I'm so fortunate that he was willing to come on and share his story. It's my first baby boomer that came on to talk about their story and who they are. He's a 69-year-old black dude from Oakland. Damon was vulnerable and honest and real. Um, if you listen to this, and you still don't understand what this revolution is about, please call me, contact me, email me, let's chat. I'll listen and try to explain. I don't know everything. I know that I'm a crazy middle-aged white lady. I mean, I'm more than that. I've been reminded, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm willing to lean in and have a conversation. So again, I don't want to waste any more time on myself. I just don't want to waste time. I have a lot of growing and learning to do as a person, as a white person. You know, speaking of which, the more I research, the more I see that black women, trans, non-binary, queer, people of color, really, are pretty much invisible. So if you know somebody that wants to come on and share a story with me, I'm really trying to provide more space for those types of people alone. I want to amplify you. If you are a person of color that is non-binary, trans, a woman, queer, asexual, bisexual, whatever you are, perhaps you know someone, hit me up, hit me up. Okay, so Damon, I'm going to go right into it because this one's an hour and a half or hour and 20 minutes, I forget, but please stick through this because this is, his story is important to where we are in this world. Um, extremely honored to stand witness to Damon's story. It was life-changing for me, to be quite honest. I picked a quote from MLK Jr. This quote was taken from a public speech that Martin Luther King Jr. did on the steps of the state capitol in Montgomery, Alabama, after the completion of the Selma March. How long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you shall reap what you sow. Keeping it short and sweet. Because we need to be better. And this isn't about me. 
This is about Damon and the things that Damon went through. Damon is a good-hearted, he even says glasses, half-full kind of guy. And considering all the things that he went through, it's pretty incredible that he marches through the world with love in his heart. So as always, going into this podcast, keep your hearts open, your mind open, and I love you. I hope you're doing okay. Thanks so much for listening. You don't know the future. So Damon, where where were you born? Where are you from? I'm actually born right here in the Bay Area, Oakland, California. And, and that was a long time ago, right? Yeah, um, according to my mother, 69 years ago. Go. Okay. 69 yes. years ago. So were your parents together when you were born? Yes, they were. They remained together until they died, actually. Wow. Yes. Yes. I believe they got married in 1945 and my father passed away in 1986. My mom, we lost her in 19. No, not 19. It was 2010. 2010. Oh, wow. Yes. So she was 90. She she was actually four oh, years four years my dad's senior, you know, and like I always say, don't nothing get old but clothes. I feel the same way towards yeah. women. I like older women too. Mm-hmm. More yeah, that's so. So were you were you an only child? No, actuality, I'm number three child, number three son. My mom and dad had seven children all together eventually, and. They had three sons in a row and then turned around and had three girls in a row and then another son. Oh my good God. That's a lot of children. Seven, seven children. Yeah. yeah that's kind of a tribe today. Yeah. In today's world, yeah. that would be a tribe because you just so don't. How was kids. it for you growing up with so many siblings in Oakland? How was it? Well, in actuality, I understood something at 28, why I was not close to my mom, because my sister Diane was born like 13 months after I was. So I never had baby time with my mother. I got bounced to my dad because the new baby, as you know, is, uh, has more needs. (laughs) And I was a year, I was already a year older when Diane came in 52, Mm -hmm. in 1952. So I got bounced. But one day I was studying this this, uh, this information about why, you know, how come I'm not close to my mom like I should be? I really never developed that closeness until later in life when I understood, when I understood, because she didn't have time for me because you had seven, eventually seven kids, you know, it's, it's, it's like having a classroom. You, <laughs> you, you know you love, but you don't get the, the time and attention. And I didn't mind that because I was sort of a loner and a quiet um, kind of personality. Didn't really understand the world. The world didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, mm-hmm. and very, very shy. Very, very shy. And eventually I just... I developed a stuttering problem, a stuttering oh. problem that was so chronic and it hurt me in school 
to where um, they put me in speech class. And then eventually, I didn't know it at the time, but I had a learning problem. You're talking about ADD. Boy, I didn't know I was a card-carrying ADD student until later on in life. Because those words and attention deficit, dyslexia, all that stuff, I have. And I didn't know that. Coming up in the 1950s, you got written off as a child. Because a lot of times, what they would do, they would send teachers to our school that couldn't really relate to you. And the only time they were around Black people was when they were teaching. That's except for one teacher who I deemed her my second mom, and that was Miss Olson. Miss Olson. I love that lady like a like a mom and she's she's a special woman to this day i will never forget miss olson because boy she was she was just totally special to me and like my second mom i would tell my mom that uh, miss olson said thus and so my mother would say you go to bed anyway i'm she's your second mom i'm your first as simple as that. It was that kind of relationship with myself and my third grade teacher, which I met in 1960. Yeah. But but eventually, but it continued to be a lifelong love affair with her, because I would visit her up until she died. Yes. Oh my God! So like you that. don't hear that ever. You don't hear that ever. That's incredible. Yeah, and she knew it. And she would say, "Damon, you know you're my son." Also, I said, "Yes, I know, Miss O." Oh, that's so adorable. Was, yeah, I'll never forget her. Never, I'll never forget her. Yeah. I think about her all the time. All the time. Yeah, and the things she so, taught, so taught me. I was just going to ask you, what did she teach you? Well, she, she number one, she was a big, shall we say, she, politics, politics. I remember when, oh my goodness, she was a huge JFK fan. I remember the inauguration. She took us to see it live. Him oh, taking wow. the oath of office. Yeah, it was, uh, and I, I will never forget that day. And he, she took us over to Miss Wright's class. This was 1961. I was 10 years old, about to be 10. Oh, my God. I would be 10 later on that year. I'll never forget that. We went back to the class and we spoke about what was to come. And I just, I was shy. I mainly listened from what I can under glean. But he was the first president I would follow, truly follow, oh, and so yeah. forth. And, and to his death still haunts me because I knew the country was going in a pretty good place until he was murdered. Right. Yeah, it was going in a nice direction with civil mm-hmm. rights. And he was actually the first president to ever use the a phrase in 1961, affirmative action. A lot of people don't know that. So I really followed politics based on what Miss Olson was teaching us. And not oh only that, God. not only that, she was a huge uh, sports enthusiast. She was, oh, cute. she's, if you look up the Hall of Fame and Swimming Hall of Fame, she's in it. She was a marvelous swimmer. And not only that, she was 
almost single-handedly responsible for synchronized swimming in the Olympics. That that's wow. that was my mom's second mom and my teacher that I had for three years that really took care of me, even though she knew I had ADD or something was wrong with me. She knew I was not a great student. Oh my. Mm -hmm. Embarrassing. I was an embarrassing student in actuality. (laughs) Had attention span of a net. Attention span of a net. Um, But along those same lines, she was big on the Olympics. That meant a whole lot to her because her daughter swam in the Olympics of 1948 and also 1952. And she won medals, never got the gold, but she got the silver and bronze. And that was, that was her own child. Yeah. Yeah. So swimming was really big. And plus the fact, um, Zoanne's Olsen, her um, husband was a major league baseball player and he was straight from. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was just a, that, that family was very, very interesting to me. Very interesting to me because they had all these professionals all around them and what have you. And they let me in. Yeah. They let me in. And, 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 Mm -hmm. well, Miss Olson did. She let me in. You know, that was my, boy, that was my calling card to to be a part of of her life for all those years. But meanwhile, meanwhile, those were things that, uh, that I, will always cherish about my relationship with her um, because school was not easy for me. It was, it was sometimes it was a night, it was a nightmare. I would dread going to school on Friday, on Sunday night, we would watch our TV show and feel good. And then all of a sudden anxiety would roll in because Monday morning I would have to go to school. And, 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 and I'll be honest with you, the school was, more difficult when the neighborhood became predominantly black. Hmm. I go back. I got really? to with you. Yes, yes, it was more difficult because, uh, and I like when we first moved to the neighborhood in Oakland. We were like the fifth black family to move in that neighborhood. And then white flight took off. And I thought it was a lot better when it was mixed. I I really, really did. And I, number one, oftentimes with my black brother, they were, they tend to be more belligerent toward one another. And I was a peaceful living person. And I didn't, like the fact that you had those folks who would demand my lunch money or my 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 whatever cake that was in my lunch for protection on the class on the um in the schoolyard that was difficult for me that was not natural when i look back on it now and that's what you had to deal with growing up but on the other side you know Crystal, I always say there's two sides to every pancake. You turn it over, looking over my shoulder. I learned survival skills for life, growing up like that. Mm-hmm. Anywhere in a room, even though I don't speak the language, body language is going to tell me everything I need to know about those people in that room. 
I don't care where you drop me. Their body language is going to send messages. And I would get the fact that I'm in danger, watch leave, or so on one hand, it was not so good, but you learn things that you might need to take down the road in life with you, you know, because after all, a lot of people don't live to be 69 in this world. Right. They don't. Right. So you have to have a little bit of know-how to get there, even though you may not be the brightest bulb in the box at school, because a lot of my classmates who are a lot smarter than me are no longer here for whatever reason, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I oftentimes I use this analogy when it comes to safety. We have two supermarkets in this area. One is called Lucky's. The other is called Safeway. I always choose to go to Safeway because it keeps you alive. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't have any preference over where you buy your food, but I just like taking the safe route over trying, mm-hmm. to, be, trying to be lucky somewhere. Right. It, right. It kind of, it, it sustains you. If you, yeah. if you take the high, if, if you just take the safe route, there's no question about mm-hmm. that. Uh, but I, I just want to announce also, today happens to be a special day. When I woke up this morning, I looked at the calendar, and 50 years ago on this day, I graduated high school. That's huge. And, I, and as a historian, which I've come to be, I'll tell you this, Crystal. More often than not, the day that you were born and the day of the week you were born, 50 years later, it lands on the same day of the week. It was Friday that we graduated 50 years ago. Yes. Wow. Yes, it usually does land on that day unless, of course, you're a leap baby. You were born on the the 29th of February or something. That throws everything off, and I don't understand that, that equation at all. But, never, right. but 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 that's just a little trivia that I like to throw out there. <laughs> well, and it sounds like with how you grew up, that was a big accomplishment for you because you were bullied and you had a lot of things going on. Oh my goodness, you're talking about a nervous Norval. That should have been my name <laughs> because through life, <laughs> I tell you, one of the hardest things I ever had to overcome was my stuttering problem. I'm still a stutterer, mm-hmm. but you may not hear a trace unless you're around me for right. as time would go by. Some things make me more nervous than other things. And all of a sudden the words will not come out as fluent as they, as they are now, but mm-hmm. I'm feeling relaxed because I know what I'm talking about. And it's right. easy to know what you're talking about when you're talking about yourself because you walk in that shoe. Uh, along those same lines, you know, um, it's 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 always been a challenge learning. And I would be a spokesman for anybody when it comes to people who have learning differences, not disabilities, but differences. Because yeah, you know, a disability sounds like you you can't get past something. 
but you can. You just have to figure out different ways to do it. Um, right. And, and that's, you know, because the state of California has slated me as having a learning disability. I, mm-hmm. I went to college uh, to, to find out a few things. Uh, why is it that I can't connect the dots like other people? And I was tested back in 1999, and the state of California uh, has, has, I guess, disability. But mm-hmm. what school scares me. It's terrifying mm-hmm. for me to be in this, be in a school. Even if to walk mm-hmm. down the hall, I get anxiety attacks just to walk down the hall. That's how crazy mm-hmm. it is for me to yeah. be at someone's school or to sit in someone's classroom. I usually go the other way because I have to learn a different way. And usually that set of rules is not laid out there. People like myself would like to see people get on TV and succeed as well. There's a big old community out there that's totally ignored, ignored. And what does it do? It beats down your self-esteem. That's what it does. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've overcome learning differences as far as my self-esteem and understanding different things. But that's my biggest hurdle in life is my learning Mm -hmm. ability. Because I recall going to a class reunion and I forget what year it was, but it was 35-year class reunion. And one of my classmates <clears throat> said something. It was comical to me, but it was really a put-down. He said to me, I always had you pegged as someone who should have been coming to school in one of those little yellow buses. In other words, <laughs> people who had real challenges as far as not knowing their hat from their glove. That, that, that's, that's what he said to me. I laughed about it, but I took the high road. Right. I said, Ronald, yeah. I said, Ronald, I love you too. Aww. The past don't equal the future. I know I struggled in school. And he brought up Miss Olson. He said, I was in your Miss Olson's class with you. So, you know, I said, yeah, well, remember that i did struggle in her classroom yeah and unfortunately people still remind you that you struggled in school all these years later so rude which is i mean but the thing about it but that's how it's it's almost like to me when you play a role in hollywood you get typecast (laughs) you get typecast for the rest of your life and that's that's the only way they see you that's the only way they see you but you you're not the everyone if you just rationally think about it you're not the same guy or the same woman you were 20 years ago nobody should be nobody should be you know and and because you grow you grow right but but that's so so, go ahead damon let me ask you this what no no you're fine what um when you graduated 50 years ago today what what were your aspirations what were you taught from your parents Right? Because you're talking, is that 1970? Right? 1970, yes. Yeah. So <clears throat> here's Damon out in the world graduating. What were your plans? How did you overcome all those things? And what were you taught to, to deal with the 
what America was in 1970, which is much different than what it was today, but also the same, right? Well, <laughs> like, well once, once again, after you bump your head against the wall and try to figure out what direction you need to go in because you're no longer in school and, ah, boy, college is not something that you qualify for. Um, and so you just, you just try different things. Um, and actually, I didn't know where I was going. Honestly, I was lost but not found. And so I just needed to redevelop or refine myself in another way. Um, I met a guy in 1972 named Dave Diola. I don't know where Dave is, but I will love him for the rest of my life. He gave me a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. It was, I think it was written by Maxwell Maltz in the 1950s, but the book was simple, a simple read, but it was dealing with retraining your brain to think a certain way. And that book was a turning point in my life because it told me I didn't have to stutter. I didn't have to settle mm -hmm. for being a chronic stutterer. Mm -hmm. And um, I started to implement some of the suggestions in the book and it next thing you know over time the stuttering diminished and I was able to hold a conversation and be more confident about walking into a store and asking what I wanted or even at answering a telephone and words would come out words would come out whereas in 1971 that was difficult words would not come out and I had to do like sign language to try to tell people what I was, <laughs> what I wanted. It was quite oh, embarrassing, wow. quite embarrassing indeed. Mm. And then, um, but that book was a turning point in my life. And I will always be indebted to Dave Diola for handing me that book and giving me a read. He just, it was, he was, he was about to throw it away. And I asked, well, what is that book, man? And he said, no, you want it, I'm through with it. And mm -hmm. wow, it, 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 was a, it, it helped me to put together that, hey, Damon, you, you need some psychological help. That's what it mm -hmm. told me of help books. If, whenever mm -hmm. I was in a bookstore, I was always in the self-help aisle because I thought I was so messed up that mm -hmm. I needed some real psychological help mm -hmm. and was very damaged. And so that's what I did. I just kept reading self-help books from here, there, and everywhere. And also, um, was listening to tapes because I found that I was an auditory learner. I learned better mm -hmm. from hearing. And so I um, started buying books on tapes to help encourage me to be a better person. And The Magic of Thinking Big was a book I did read back in the 90s, and that was very helpful. So 
Not a lot. That's a lot. Yes. All of that is a lot to be dealing with. Yes, because when you don't do well in school, it doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. You bring home report cards and they're not looking good and you're embarrassed to show them to your parents. That was that was always terrifying for me. And my father, mm-hmm. my father had an eighth grade education, but he could read circles around me. He always wondered, why, why are you such a poor reader? I could not answer that. Could not answer that whatsoever. Even though he did love me. Uh, it's okay. That. How did they support all of you? What did your parents do they, to support they, you all? Well, my father, he was an aircraft mechanic at first, and then he got a job with the city of Oakland. And my mom mainly worked as a domestic at times, although she did work for the government prior to um, our birth. And my, they were just amazing at stretching a dollar amazing. They were practical people. They didn't live beyond their means. Paid off their home on time. I recall they bought two cars, brand new, in my lifetime. And they they were excellent at managing money, even though they were not college-educated people. They just did everything from a practicality standpoint. And my mother was, hmm. mom and dad were amazing. And I'll be honest with you, Crystal, I am, I am not close to who they are. They, they came from a different world, whereas mm-hmm. they had to be extraordinary. They, were they did. With all those children. Not to, mm-hmm. not to mention that the dollar did go a lot further in those days. Yes, it, mm-hmm. it did go a lot further. You can get a whole lot more for the buck in those days. Nevertheless, I look over my shoulder and I, my parents were just extraordinary. And not only them, the other folks in the neighborhood who had large families, they were extraordinary too. They, they did extraordinary things too. And, yeah. and so, Having those examples in front of me, I know it's a different world today, and I don't know how they did it. I don't know how yeah. they did it, but they did it. And it was just, I'm still marvel at that because yeah, I'm none of that. I'm actually none right. of that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and then to think about them having all that weight on their shoulders with seven kids and going through the movement of the time. Oh, yes, yes, you're, you're absolutely right, because there were, for my father, he did develop a drinking problem. Mm. I would later find out why. There's so many men in that neighborhood would, they had a ritual on Saturday. They would mow their lawns, and I would work in the yard on Saturday. My father made sure he went to the yard and he would supervise us. In the morning, say about 
say 11 o'clock or so, especially if it was mm-hmm. warm, you know, there was no new dew on the, on the ground at that time. And so you walk down the street, long street we would have. And what I would find in common with many of those black men, by two o'clock, they would be drunk. I'm serious. Yes. And I always wonder mm-hmm. why? Why do they have to drink so much? Well, I saw a skit on the Dean Martin show in the 1960s. Richard Pryor, he performed a skit and it involved what those men were going through. And it brought home to me. They were dealing with a system that they were never going to be a part of the club. So they needed that outlet. And Richard Pryor performed that skit and he had these kids that were breaking windows and he was correcting them. Don't do that. Don't do that. And the kids told him, well, oh, I'm just mad at the man. I'm just mad at the man. And he said, you guys ought to find something. Go play baseball. Do something constructive. And then when the kids left, Richard pulled out a bottle out of the back of his pocket. He said, this is how I deal with the man. Start drinking. That was their outlet. That brought it home to me, why those men. Because there was no affirmative action. They had people on their jobs. They had people on their jobs who were not as smart as they were, but they were supervisors. You see what I'm saying? And those men were very frustrated about that. Because they couldn't get those jobs. They couldn't get those jobs because they didn't have the complexion to make the connection. That's all it was. That's all it was. They mm-hmm. not that those men were smarter than the one that not the, those men who were supervising were smarter, but it was just the rules at that time. Mm-hmm. Those you had to have a certain look in order to supervise and all that kind of stuff and get better jobs until affirmative action kicked in. In 1971, and then that started to change. That started to change, and then you saw a change in the weather. Melanated people started to get better jobs, but it took an act of Congress to change that. But that's so that that that, that just brought it home to me. That brought it home to me while those men drink, and my dad was part of it, and I couldn't understand because he was not an alcoholic when we. My first 15 years, he never took a drink. But then all of a sudden, I never seen him take a drink. But it, but but then all of a sudden, boom, he started drinking. And I saw a lot of those beatings in my neighborhood with, with police officers that would just come and terrorize the black community. That was- a, How old were you? That was, a, I was actually, oh, let me see. The first time I saw it, I had to be around seven seven years old. Jesus Christ. Um, and um, the officer did not did not make an arrest. Oh my God. And I said to myself, they beat him up and they let him go. And they let the guys go. They 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 did it for exercise. It's what they were doing. And I'm saying so what 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 you're telling me is like you were sitting there as a seven year old little boy looking out the window with your mom and you saw flashing lights 
and then you saw cops hurting were were these were these um gentlemen i'm assuming it was gentlemen yeah, they that were. They, were they were attacking were they kids they, they were they, they were, were they teenagers um they were young adults young adults and these cops i don't know who they are i never know never i didn't i didn't i didn't these men were grown grown up police officers and yet this happened right in front of my home and i wondered just why and but it always bugged me from that time in 1958 that i saw this and i didn't understand why they were beating these men and these men were defenseless and yet they didn't they just pulled them out of the car and started beating them up just for the for the exercise and enjoyment and they did not make an arrest and I said mom how come they doing that and she said well because they can they can and I look back on that, I never forgot it. It was it was for um exercise and enjoyment that the cops could do, just go beat up some black guys and you know, I mean I thought this is nineteen fifty eight. It's uh, it's a different world in those days. I mean it's a different world. It's just a different world. Um I didn't understand it because I'm a kid. I didn't understand it. And I I would you know when I grew, I told my mom, I said, mom, I don't think I want to, I don't want to be big if they're going to do that to me. I told my mom that I don't want to be a big guy. I don't want to be a big guy if they're going to do that to me. I don't want that. Yeah. And that was my impression right. yeah. that officer friendly wasn't always friendly to everybody. And I, I learned that at a young age. And so, and later on, um, I would have my own run-ins with, police officers when I became a teenager and it, it kept happening. And sometimes they would pull their guns on me as a teenager. I didn't think I would live to be, live to be 30. I really didn't growing up in that manner. I didn't think I would. Right. So, so Damon, tell me about the first time that happened. I was on the, I was actually on the railroad track um, with some, a friend of mine and, and this officer pulled up, and I don't know why, but he pulled his gun on me and my friend. And I said, wait a minute. I don't believe this. Um, and he said, well, what are you guys doing? He said, we were just out here playing. He said, well, I heard some kids were breaking windows out here. Oh, that wasn't us. That wasn't us. And so... Um, I, I I just went home and and told my mom and it was it was quite frightening. It was quite frightening. And father said, you know, yeah. don't don't go down the track anymore. Don't go down on the railroad tracks anymore. You know, but that's what kids would do. You know, you would sometimes go out there and catch lizards and things like that. And it, it was looking back on that. Crystal, it it was kind of maddening. I I still have nightmares yeah. about those times as 
as a kid growing up, oh. I still have nightmares. And and I remember one time I I was I was actually popping some firecrackers and some cops pulled up on me and boy they could have killed me. They they thought I had a gun. In today's world they would have shot me. But they they I'm so happy they had the restraint not to shoot me. They could have killed me. And I was a teenager. I remember that also. And later on, um, you know, I mean, I got arrested walking while back from a party. It just continued to happen. And I'm saying, wow. Wait, 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 wait. You got arrested for what? For doing what? Walking while black. And that was the last time I was arrested Ugh. walking while black in 1968 from a party. I still remember that. And they said I had stolen a car. And I, I said, I don't even drive. I can't drive a car. <laughs> I was just a late bloomer as far as driving and everything. And uh, it, it was just, it was just, to me, you had this mindset. You had to know your place in society. There was do's and don'ts that you don't have the right to do. And there was one town, the town that I'm living in right now, San Leandro. If we came over here, policemen would, would chase us out of, you know, coming to play baseball. Sometimes they would tell us to get back to Oakland or wherever you came from. You you just didn't have certain rights. And just to play a simple game like baseball. And I love baseball. And, but, and over here in the white neighborhoods, they had the best ballparks to play in, the best places to play. And it, it, but it, it wasn't your right. Uh, And many times being chased by police officers for no reason, because they would be walking home. Sometimes we had, me and my friends would have to run just to get, across the track and get back to Oakland. It was crazy. It was crazy. I said, Oh my God, it, Damon. it was crazy growing up. And I told my mom, I said, mom, mom, you had no idea. You would have never let us go to San Leandro. If you only knew what we had to go through to go play baseball. Yeah. You would never, it was almost like every time we went to go play baseball, it was almost like, we were marching for civil rights just to go play baseball because right. policemen and white kids would throw, throw things at us, call us the N word. And it was, it was like, you didn't have to go to the Southern Southern regions of the United States to feel what black people felt all across the country. You didn't have to. California supposed to be liberal, but well, in certain sections, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was the, the town. Right. The town that I live in right now, San Leandro. It wasn't until 1972 that black people were allowed to legally live over here. I'm serious. And you can throw a rock. Jesus. You can throw a rock from my mother's backyard to San Leandro. All you have to do is throw it over the over the railroad track, and you would you would throw you would be in San Leandro territory. But it took laws. For black folks to live over here. It was one of the most prejudiced little towns in America. And I think CBS News did a special 
about that in 1965. And that was the town lived right next door to where I grew up. And I knew the pain when we, when, when I would come here, it was always rather scary because policemen, you always had to watch out for policemen. You know, they would, they would want to abuse you and everything because, you know, you don't have that, you have that skin that just doesn't, I guess you might say, have the complexion for the protection. You just don't have it in the minds. And that's so sad. And and here we are, 2020. Well, I, I kind of sometimes wonder, is it really 2020 or is it 1820? Yeah. <laughs> to this day, to this day, because I have a grandson now and I gave him the black man talk when he was a teenager. And much to my surprise, he told me I've already been stopped by a policeman for walking down the street. And the cop told me, if I see you out here again, I'm going to arrest you just for walking down the street. I said, son, that may happen for many years to come because people are just not ready for prime time when it comes to us. They're just not ready. Damon, how many times, how many times were you stopped by cops or hurt by cops before 1970 when you graduated 50 years ago today? Like how many times just as a child do you think? I would say in the neighborhood about well over 15 times. Oh my God. Well over 15 times to, to the point that you didn't want to go certain places. Because you know you might have a chance of getting in trouble. And I was like 17 years old when I got arrested for walking while black. And my civil rights were just, you might say, um, violated because they, they never, I never went to court because they had no evidence of what they accused me of. And I remember getting down to the police station and I asked the police officer, am I allowed to call my mother? Um, if looks could, if looks could kill that man wanted to kill me in that elevator when they were taking myself and some young Mexican brothers up the elevator. And I was the oldest one. And I told him, I said, man, we have to be real cool when they take us in the elevator because I heard stories where they beat you up in the elevator. And and here I was asking a police officer and a detective. And the police officer in uniform was the one that gave me that dirty look. And I can tell, if looks could kill, boy, I tell you, I should have been dead years ago. I should have been dead years ago. Years ago. Right. Because like right. I said. I mean, that, I, uh, it's, of course. I mean, it leaves me speechless, all of it, Damon, like your, your lead up to like your, your learning problems that you had with the stutter and all the things that you were going through on top of dealing with just trying to live a life as a normal being uh, in the world as a child. It's like, oh, I'm just, I'm having a hard time keeping my shit together over here, Damon. <laughs> like I'm, well, I'm just in tears because it's, I'm sorry you went through that. I'm so sorry. Well, well thank that, you, that, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, that's, that's, that's a reality for young black men. 
I know. That's just a reality. We we don't know what normalcy is because we never had it. I know. We I don't know what that is. I have no idea. If you ask me the question, what is normalcy? What is a normal life? I don't know. I never I never walked. It's almost like telling Stevie Wonder the color of blue or red when he's never seen it. <laughs> you you can't you can't explain it. You don't know what that is. Right. You never saw. Right. Right. And so, but, 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 but I've learned from my father's instruction, Damon, it happened to your grandfather and your grandfather before him. And it's happened to me. It's happening. It's going to happen to you boys. And no doubt it's going to happen to your children as well. So we have to get in where we fit in because we're never, we can never be full citizens in America. That was the instructions that I got. We can never be full citizens. We have to get in where we fit in. We can never know what it's like to be a full citizen in America. That's all there's to it. Even though we love America, but America will never love you. Yeah. It will never love you. Well, and it's like severe trauma, severe PTSD, severe, like you know, amplifying someone that already has anxiety and like all the, the psychological warfare put upon an entire race of human beings, you know, like generational trauma kind of shit. And it just, it's enraging. So, so Damon, you go, you go to college and then how does your adult life look? What does it look like as, as it's 1970, 1971, you know, how does, how do, how do things evolve for you if they did evolve? Well, in actuality, what happened, I I joined a group of Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1974 year. I started studying and things, I needed God. I felt like I needed God. And because man, governments can't solve my problem. I don't care who's in that White House. I'm still going to be seen as a subhuman being. No matter what I accomplish, I'm still going to be seen as something subhuman because of the way I look. And so God is the only one who gave me this melanation. I need to get to know him and find out some, some, to satisfy, to satisfy some, some, some answers that I have in my head rolling around because I was always taught that I am equal. And, but I don't, I don't feel that people feel that way when they see me mm-hmm. and because you are subject to so much, um, shall we say, um, insults, yeah. insult, because you're not a member of the club right? and that's, and that's what the result is, is that if you could change the way you look, you would probably understand what it's like to not be a suspect when you walk down the street or go to a a neighborhood where people don't look like you, you know, and get the cops called in on you because you look out of place. You look out of place. All this kind of stuff. And and I, I can, I recall that, you know, going to school and everything. I just, just was trying to fit in in the 70s until later on, um, 
I came across the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I did that for a little while, but I found that even there, looking at their history, they wrote some very lugubrious stuff about Black people. And I said, no, I don't want to be a part of this. And they're talking about Black people being slaves and that their purpose in life is to serve, serve, serve as a slave and all this old stupid stuff. And I said, no, this is no place for me. So I just gave up religion altogether, organized religion together, because it just didn't fit. Although I, I, I still believe in the creator. You know, because I know this, mm-hmm. I feel like the world was put together by someone greater than me. And yet, you just live your life as best you can and as peacefully as you can. Because, again, it it comes back to knowing the truth. And that everybody on this planet, my parents always taught us that everyone on this planet is equal. Everybody on this planet has a mom and dad. Everyone on this planet, you know, they they have similar fears and concerns just like you do. But some people have it better than others because they don't look like you. They don't yeah. look like you at the end of the day, you know. And so, you know, it, it's just amazing. Um, uh, in the news, something was brought to my attention turning on the news this morning about how Mr. Trump is going to be starting a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, yeah. Tulsa, Oklahoma has is near and dear to me because my dad is from Oklahoma, and uh, I pinpoint my grandfather being or escaping that massacre in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and surviving it. You know where they firebomb that whole black community. The only time it's ever been done is to, you know, destroy those people's livelihood and it never recovered. And three years later, my grandfather, no, my grandson is, I shouldn't say my grandson, my, my grandfather's son, which who became my father is born about 90, almost 90 miles away from there. And so thank God my grandfather escaped. Because yeah. I wouldn't be talking to you now. Nope. Because I'm all I'm all a part of that assembly line that came together. It, it, it's just amazing, but that's why I look at the situation and I appreciate the progress that Americans have made toward relations, race relations, so-called race relations. I only look at... I don't really like to use the word race because I only see that only one race on the planet, the human race. That's the only race I ever see and everything. But everyone has different cultures. And I like to use cultural Culture. backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Cultural yeah. backgrounds. Because you, you, I can say thank you in many languages because I have friends and people from many cultures from many different languages. And I enjoy the food when I've been able to sit at those tables and eat with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's it's like that, and and that's the brotherhood that I try to celebrate when I look at mankind, and always hoping that we all could 
teach the world to sing. You know, there was a commercial in 1972. It was called Teaching the World to Sing. It's one of the most beautiful commercials I've ever seen because you had people from all different cultures singing together. And to this day, that's one of the best commercials ever made to me. And I said, now that's the world. That's the world I like to live in, where it talks about peace and harmony in that song that they were singing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. you, you, many people like yourself are too young to remember that commercial, but I wish they I would remember bring it. Back. it. Like I think I remember I hearing it, and it was like a Coca Cola commercial. Right. You're absolutely on point. It was a Coke yep. commercial. It was a Coke yep. commercial. Indeed. It was one of the most beautiful commercials. Every time it would come on, I would stop what I was doing and watch it and smile. I said, now that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> that's right. the way it's supposed yeah. to be. <laughs> well, you know, Damon, I have to wonder like what you experienced as an adult with um, altercations with the police. Did you experience well, the same amount as you well, did as a kid? Well, did it get better? Well, well in actuality, um, I had, uh, the last time I had a gun pointed at me was, and it's happened about 12, 12 times in my life, counting. And the last time it happened was in 2000, December 10th. I'll never forget it coming out of a liquor store, which was ran by my adopted son, who happens to be Asian. And I was visiting him at his store. I walk out of the store with a seven up because my stomach was sort of like, I need to settle my stomach that night. And I was working graveyard for the city of Oakland in a uniform city vehicle at the corner. And all of a sudden I walk out of the store and three guns are on me. And I said, he did, the cop said, get on the ground. I said, who, me? <laughs> I said, what's going on? He said, get on the ground. So I got on the ground. My seven up down and I lost my appetite and for the taste of that seven up and got on the ground and held up my hands. I asked one question, am I allowed to know what this is all about? Didn't get an answer. And then after being on the ground on my knees with my hands up in my city of Oakland uniform, I asked the question again, am I allowed to know what this is all about? And next thing you know, the officer who happens to be a Caucasian officer, and actually there was an Asian officer and also a Latino officer. They were the women, but the male officer was Caucasian and he, takes his rifle and he points it at my head. And he makes as though he's cocking the rifle to blow my head off. And I said to myself, this is serious. My adopted son is, he said, Damon, I was petrified looking at you. I was afraid to come out there. I said, don't worry about it. I got out with my life. I got out with my life. And after, well, I, after they got a call and said, you're, something went wrong or you, you made a mistake, the officer did apologize. Then he puts his hand over, he puts his hand over his badge before he apologized. And I'm, and I spoke with the other officer and I said, you know, that young man in that store right there that you guys thought I was robbing, 
He happens to be a family member. And she said, him? I said, yes. I adopt children from all over this world. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. And they let me go. But that was the last time I had that trauma. And just, I said, well, another day at the office. I hate to say it. Another day at the office. This is not the first time I've gone through this. And I just, I just wonder how long will this continue in my life? Because in 2000, I happened to be, uh, I guess I was 40, 40 years old. So it had been happening since I was a teenager up until I was 40 or the last time. And do I dare say that that would be the last time it happens? I don't think so. I don't think so. It hasn't happened since in 20 years. But I will not rule it out because I live in America. And my skin has not changed colors. Right. So I'm not going to rule that out at all. At all. And every time I see my son who lives up there in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. we always have a we always have a meeting and I always ask him, Have you had a bad experience with a police officer? Because I'm still your father and I have to continue to remind you, even though you have white friends, even though you have friends of various backgrounds, you are the eight ball on the table. Nine times out of 10, if anything goes down, you will be the focus. You will be the focus. And that's just how people, unfortunately, that culture of policing is. You are targeted for whatever reason. You are targeted. And that goes back to the slavery days because in the South, the slave patrol. Came, became the police in this country based on what my understanding is. It's a culture. It's been there for years. And I just think it's part of the epigenetics of that culture. I really, really do. Because it continues down to this day because we saw a man a few weeks ago get killed in broad daylight. And the police officer had his hand in his pocket so nonchalant about doing it as though I can get away with this. I can get away with this. And I know it because others before me have gotten away with this. And so that's why when I leave my house, I'm not sure if I'm coming back home. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it back home because that man with the badge looks at me cross-eyed. He looks at me differently, then I'm not going to get the benefit of the doubt. That's all there is to it. <laughs> not not too long ago, it was about a couple summers ago, I recall observing a situation right here in my town, hometown. There was a young lady who went into the post office and left some kids in a hot car. And I saw a police officer walking the strip mall and I went up to him, and I'll tell you, just by my presence, he transformed into the Hulk 
like I was talking, just by talking to the man, his physicality changed. And I said, officer, I'm observing a situation that's not very healthy. Young lady just went into the post office, left those kids in that hot car. It would not be appropriate for me to go over there. Could you go over there and save their lives? And he relaxed. Just by talking to the man, he changed. His whole physicality, his neck, veins in his neck, the whole bit. You're talking to me. I really must. I feel like I was the boogeyman. I felt like, and I was just doing, a, just just giving him a, a, a concerned citizen report. But I saw, and you know, I, I got to mention something else that was very bizarre that happened last year. I get um I get a a box of envelopes on my porch. Um, had come home from work, and there's a package on my porch. There's, I open it up, and there's $8,000 worth of checks in that box of envelopes that should be distributed to people. I took it over to the police department, the local police department here in San Leandro, and the officer accused me of having something to do with the money. It was, it was so bizarre. He said, are you sure you, you didn't have anything to do with this? I said, officer, these checks are not for me. I don't know these people. And you know what? He was reluctant to even take a police report. And I never got a police report for it. You see? You do a good deed, you do a, you turn in eight, it was actually close to, it was over $8,000 worth of checks when I opened up the package. And my name was on the package. I don't know how those people, but I've been a victim of identity theft over, what is it, this last year, 2009. So it's no telling what's coming at me. I have no idea what's going to land on my front porch. And the officer intimated that I had something to do with it. I said, oh, my God. So I am a criminal in his mind. Wow. I felt so bad. I felt so bad. Well, you can't. I can't win. I can't win. Not with, I don't, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. Even when you're trying to do right. I said, oh, my. Oh, my. Lions, tigers, and bears. <laughs> but, 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 but all in all, it's just the culture and the nature of sometimes the people behind the badge is not going to be friendly to everybody. That's just what it comes down to. He may be officer friendly to you, but he, but I'm leery. I, my blood pressure goes up when I see them, when I'm driving down the street, because I don't know if they're going to stop me or if they're going to kill me. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be my last day on the planet.
I don't know. And I've, I've had friends who are officers. There's a young man who comes to the 7-Eleven that I frequent. He's a friend. He, <laughs> we get into, and I love the guy. And I always tell him, Jeremy, you be careful out there. You be careful out there. And he told me one day, he said, now he's a Latino, young Latino brother. And I said, and he said, and, I, and he told me one day, he said, you know, we, he said, he said, you know as well as I know, because you're older than me, you're older than my father. You know, we target black folks. I said, yes. I said, not you, not you. But he said that, you know, the policing is to target black people and poor people. That's it. That's it. Those are the people we target. And I said, yeah, you ain't got to tell me, Jeremy. I know. <laughs> I walk in this shoe every day. I walk in this shoe every day and everything. But, but I, I also want to mention the fact that despite all the the nonsense and the psychological beatdown that has occurred in my life, I still see the glass half full. One of my favorite Broadway shows is an old cowboy called the Will Rogers Follies. There's a song that he sings and it's entitled, I Never Met a Man I Didn't Like. I think that song could be sung in churches because it really gives you the human side of loving mankind. And there's a verse in that song where he says, I've met the worst and I've met the best. They have all put me to the test, but somehow I always find they're just as human as I am. And so I have fellow feeling. I'm not saying the verse verbatim, but that's the thought. At the end of the day, I still see that they're just a lump of sod, just like I am, no different. And so there's hope, even for the worst. And so that's why I have to see them, you know, because uh, it was a few years back, uh, a man was shot in my backyard and it turned out he was a white supremacist. And I go to court and I defend him by the way I didn't like the way that man was shot. The police officer didn't have to shoot him. And it bugged me. And I said, yes, I'm, I'm going, I'm going wow. to defend this man. He can hate me tomorrow. But if they'll shoot a white man down like this, I know he'll shoot me. <laughs> I know he'll shoot me. And this officer... Oh my God, Damon, that's crazy. Shouldn't be on the the beach shooting people like that. And I saw the whole thing from my my window. And the man was like 25 feet away before he pulled his gun and shot the man like it was a firing squad. And I remember going to court with this 
to defend this gentleman who I did not know. And both, both, both gentlemen were white. And yet, um, I said, I got to stand up for this man. Because when those detectives knocked on my door, they asked, you know, there was a, they, they said, did you hear anything? I said, yes, I, did you see anything? I said, I'm afraid I saw too much. And I welcomed them, welcomed those fellows in and gave a statement. And then I went downtown and gave another statement. And even had a couple of reporters call me because the police report was not exactly what corroborated what I said. And so um, I remember going to court, defending this so-called white supremacist. And ironically, there was a interesting, interesting twist because just like that song, Never Met a Man You Didn't Like, um, and having a, a human touch the way he was shot, it turned out that he he was paralyzed when he got to court because he came in, he was paralyzed on one side. Uh, the third bullet, there was actually three shots and the third bullet missed because I remember the detectives coming back looking for the bullet and they never did find it, seemed like. And unfortunately, the, the, you know, the man was paralyzed and I, I don't know if he ever got over his full limb on his left side, but it turned out that he was paid a nice sum of money because I remember his lawyer coming here for the judicial trial, happened to be a young Caucasian lady, and we went back in the backyard and, and went through the uh, progressions of what happened, and reenactment of what happened, what I saw, and she agreed with me. He didn't have to shoot him. And so, uh, and I found out, I asked her, what was that all over anyway? And she said it was a traffic stop. It was a traffic stop resulting in this man being shot. I said, wow, that's small. I said, wow, hmm, that doesn't make sense. Meanwhile, for the, um, a few months go by and the civil trial comes up. And this is the irony of it all. I'm speaking with another lawyer, a male this time, and I detect something. Intrinsically, I detect that he sounds like a black man. And I asked him, are you, are you African-American? And he says, yes. I said, but I thought the gentleman was a white supremacist. And he said, well, he hired me. <laughs> I started laughing. I said, what do you know? Huh. He, he, this man has changed. <laughs> and he told me, he said, yes, we, we, he hired me because we're going back to get, you know, because like your, your story and another young lady, it, it, it matched what happened. And so he's going to get paid. He's going to get paid. And doggone it, I think he got 
somewhere in the sum of close to $2 million for that wow. incident that almost killed him. And I found out his name was yeah. Grant. Did, did, did he see you testify? Of course. He was right there in court. In fact, uh, a couple of times he busted out laughing when I was testifying. I remember that. He had a nice jovial laugh. And he was a, he was a, he was a, a buxom, big fella, big sort of guy, like a, yeah. like an old cowboy, you know, like kind of reminds me of like Hoss Cartwright in Bonanza or somebody. He kind of reminded me of Hoss. And mm-hmm. he was, he was a strong guy because he, 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 he was shot twice. I don't know if he might've been high on something. I don't know. And didn't feel the pain, but. He he was he was he was a tough guy, I must say. But uh, of course, he saw me. He came in there and he was walking on a crutch when he came to court. And he was you can see that he was paralyzed on one side. On and yet, but he had a sense of humor because he busted out laughing a couple times during the testimony. And <laughs> I don't know what made him laugh. <laughs> but all I can say is that. Uh, Poor guy, he he got his money, and sadly, I understand he he, he OD'd, he partied. I, I got a call call from one of the reporters who had informed me about his death, but I never saw him. But in the backyard, getting shot, and also that one time in court. And I didn't care if I ever saw him again. I felt like I did my my duty. In fact, I had to take off work. Yeah, there, Damon. There, there's not many people that would do that. I hope you. I mean, you do realize this, correct? I don't even know if I could. Like, I, I really admire that you were able to lean in to a situation that you thought was wrong, and just. Because that's truly the radical way of change. Yes. Right? Yes, because you have to be carefully taught. You have to be carefully taught. Because when I look back at how black folk has been treated, have been treated by law enforcement, it's been 400 years we've been going through this. That's a long time. That's a long time, 400 years to be going through this. And it seems as though uh, George being a, a martyr, so to speak, has caused people to open them up, their eyes to a reality that's been here for centuries. And to see it go international. I never thought I would see anything like that over a black man. Oh, please. This is almost like, it's almost like a dream. It's almost like a dream. I know. I never. Every day, every day I say that to myself as a, as a middle-aged crazy white lady, I'm every day. I am like, Oh, I look at my 12-year-old daughter and I'm like, we, I can't believe what is happening. The revolution that is happening 
I never thought in a million years I would see it in my lifetime. Confederate flags, NASCAR, statues being ripped down. I mean, it is like, it's, I, again, it's so hard because as a little, like a white privileged person from Ohio that I am, right? I'm like, I hope, I hope so badly. I don't care how long it takes. I'm just on the board of like, burn it all to the ground and let's start over with truth in front of us, you know, with full truths and being able to have, this is where I get like, so teary eyed, like hope for the children that they don't have to go through that, that they don't have to live like your grandson, you know, not being able, not having that same experience, not hitting the re- the, the repeat button, you know, where you have to walk in fear to go to the store, to drive in your car, yeah. to do anything. To, to do anything because you're not a member of the club. You're not. Right. You're not a member of the yes. club. And once you figure it out, you must get in where you fit in. And a lot of places, unfortunately, are not ready for you, of prime time. Or, or I should say, maybe it's changing because of, you know, the, it's maybe a change in the weather now because of what uh, Mr. Floyd went through and the world saw it and how it was done because the image of that police officer with one hand in his pocket while murdering that man, that was the the ultimate lynching scene on television, on, on camera. That was a high, high tech lynching. The man was contained, but I understand when it comes to a black man, sometimes people think we're superhuman and that we are animal, that we have this extra strength that other people don't have. And sometimes it plays out even at the doctor's office. Because I've gone to the doctor and needed medication and I would not I would not receive it. Because doctors think that I have a a different threshold for pain. Wait a minute. I'm just as human as you are. Yep. I mean doctors it even plays out even at the doctor's office. And that's so sad because they take an oath too. Unfortunately, your complexion, wearing this complexion, you're, there's never a time when you're unarmed in people's minds. You're dangerous. I feel like a lion in the jungle. And you have some big game hunters out here in this jungle. Because even though I'm not the, the lion's not the biggest animal in the jungle, but he is feared. He's the most feared animal, it seems. And yet, I liken myself to a lion. That I get the alien stare. And sometimes I make a joke out of it. Because I have a sense of humor. I'll say to myself, look, Ma, I'm getting the alien stare. I wonder what they think of me. 
I wonder. They're acting as though they've never seen someone who looks like me. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I've yeah. I've walked down the street and had people from just about every race gravitate away from me because I'm a lion. Um, with your experience and all your the horrific things that you've went through, how do white people be better? Well, I think white folks and others, because if I look around this great big old vast world, and I include black folks in there too. Think internationally. Think internationally about this world and the way you have a human family. Everybody on this planet is related to you, whether you know it or not. And that's how I approach this from an international standpoint, and that. We're all cousins. We're all cousins. <laughs> That's why I defend the white supremacist. <laughs> because I know deep down he's related right. to me. He's related to me at the end of the day. I know that. But he doesn't know that. And sometimes people just have to reach out of their comfort zone and stop being clansmen toward one race, like most people that hang out with people who look like themselves. That's clanism to me. Be more international. Get to know someone who doesn't look like you or doesn't have the same cultural background. You might even learn a new language doing so. At least you're going to learn how to say thank you in that language. So that's yeah. Those are pluses, and that really ha- helps in the neighborhood of stretching your mind. It goes back to the mind and stretching it, exercising. We exercise our bodies. We can exercise our minds, our culture ex- cultural experiences, and everything. Let's not be afraid of people, and especially melanated people. That's the way to do it. Get out of your comfort zone and stop being a Klansman. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a perfect answer. You are like a one of a kind human being, Damon. I hope you know this. <laughs> like, well, you really are. Well, um, I was born on Friday, Friday the 13th. So I guess that does make me unique. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yes, it sure does. And you know, it's, uh, it's a little like <clears throat> that story with the the white supremacists, just things that you say. It's incredible that you hold so much love in your heart still through all of this experience that you've embraced love through your path and are so willing to give it to so many people. It's really beautiful. Well, well thank you. And I don't know no other way. I do not know no other way because like Michelle Obama said in one of her speeches, when they go low, we go high. Your thoughts have to be higher than theirs. It has to be. And maybe they'll learn something. They'll learn something. And you will too. Yeah. We, 
willing to have that in uncomfortable conversation with someone. Oh, Be yes. willing to have that uncomfortable conversation because many of our white brothers and sisters, they are afraid of that conversation. They're afraid of it for whatever reason. And I know just like Nelson Mandela, when he was in prison for all those years, when he re got his release, he wanted to get along with everybody in South Africa. He didn't have that revenge that I'm going to get you back for the 28, nine years I was in prison for just trying to be free in my own country. That's right way to go because it's all about the peace and the harmony. Yep. I mean, it is. I mean, my goodness. You, you, you're willing to buy a recording if it has the right harmony. It will, yeah. it will stir your heart to have the right harmony. It does. Just like a, just like a recording, yeah. just like a melody. It is sweet. And it, it's heart stirring to have those melodies play over and over again. But I know because of the hierarchy, I put myself in a white person's, I try to sometimes, why does he react this way? Why does he feel this way? Well, after all those years of conditioning, how, how is it, how it would be, how would it be easy for him to act on the reverse side? And, it, unless he's taught, unless he's taught, because we are, we have established here a white nation, and you know you are large and in charge if you're white in this country. Certain things are going to go your way, no matter how much you know. You are part of the club, and yet be willing to share some of that power. That's the only way we're going to fix this thing. And I say to, I say yeah. to black people, I say to my white brothers, we didn't create this yeah. problem. Yes, this to me is a white problem. You you separated you separated people when you got here, and you established this America, and yet you don't tell the whole truth when it comes to schooling about American history oh, and all this yeah, kind of do. stuff. A lot of yeah. things you leave out. That other other groups other groups had a hand in doing, and yet you don't tell that story. You know, you you, you when when you capture or you become the victor, you write the story. You write the story. When you tell me that Thomas Jefferson and yes. Sally Hemming had a love relationship, there are parts of that you're leaving out. She was fourteen. He was in his, he was in his forties. He was raping her. You don't tell that story. It feels so free to embrace that other people are embracing this, the false narrative, because that's what you just said is truly a hundred percent. The real issue is that they rewrote history and they didn't leave in freaking truth. Like <laughs> they took out like they had the Thomas Jefferson example, like, monster absolute monster person and i you know mm -hmm. it's crazy mm -hmm. it's crazy the that narrative the, the narrative has been false yes it's been false because like i said this man is in his 40s now what man or what parent would allow 
their 14-year-old daughter to go out with a 48-year-old man. I, I don't know any. I don't know any. Thomas Jefferson was at least 48 yeah. years old, and Sally Hemig was like 14, and you were raping her. Come on, man. That's disgusting. Come on. Let's yep. be real. Yep. No, nobody yep. in their right mind will allow that. Right. Absolutely. Your point's well taken. Your point's well taken because because the Black Wall Street that was destroyed in 21, to me, that was a community. Black folks, for the most part, live in neighborhoods, not communities. Because a community, to me, is where your dollar bounces at least 12 times before it leaves and goes into the white community. That's that's how I dis, that's how yes. I define a community. Well, we have neighborhoods. The only time I see a black dollar bounce is at church and the liquor store, and it goes out of the community. It yep. goes out of the community. So that's how I define a community. And we don't have communities, yep. and that's all perfectly designed by the system. When a white person says something, it has more credibility. It does. To, to people, to melanated people, it does. It does. And even to white folk, you're believable. You are believed. You are believable. You have more credibility. And that's why a lot of times I can't get involved unless I have a co-signer who's white. Then that, to me... That envelope is sealed and is going to its expected destination. If I say something that is controversial or make a statement, a lot of times it, it has to be fact-checked, unfortunately. I, I'll give you a perfect example. Give you a perfect yeah. example. My, my best friend, Michael Lillingthal, I was the best man in his way. Michael happens to be a Caucasian brother. But to me, he's only Caucasian on the outside because he grew up in the hood. <laughs> he, 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 Michael, I don't think, I don't ever remember him dating a white person. He already always dated melanated women, Asian, black, Latino. And he married a Filipino woman. And I happened to be the best man at his wedding. And I recall prior to his marriage, we would go to parties. And there were certain people that were afraid of the dark. I would go to international parties and what have you with him. And I recall one time there was this Asian lady. I was asked by Michael, ask her to dance. I said, Mike, she's not going to dance with me. He said, well, she's a friend. I know her. I said, Mike, watch this. I go over and I said, would you, would, you, uh, <clears throat> would you honor me with the next dance? And these are like professional parties and what have you. And she said, no, 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 don't speak English. Don't speak English. <laughs> and I said, Mike, see, I told you. And he comes over and he bends over to her and he said, wait a minute. He's my friend. She bounced up like a jack-in-the-box, and she danced with me. You see, I needed a co-signer. I needed oh. a co-signer. That's the old co-sign. It never fails. It never oh. fails. Yeah. It never fails. She was willing to drop all that, I don't speak English and anything, 
Mike had the complexion to make the connection with her. And that's what happened. So right. that's what happens oftentimes when I speak because I it doesn't go anywhere, one ear and out the other. You have no credibility. You have no credibility whatsoever. And that's just the way it is. Being in the skin that I'm being in yeah. the skin that I'm in. It has no credibility. And and I and I and I've, I've even talked to young people who are younger than me. I'll ask them questions and we'll ask questions, even having a, 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 a conversation about sports, something that I lived through that he has to read about. And they still don't believe me. Still don't believe me. It's amazing. It's amazing. I said, my goodness, I know I know what I had for dinner that day when that that game happened. And yet, you no, know, you have no credibility. Right. You have you couldn't have any. But it's the way people have been conditioned to think. Conditioned to think. You know, and I get that even from my Latino brothers. Conditioned to think. They've been conditioned right. to think a certain way. You know, that my skin is lighter than yours, so I'm superior. Uh, and, and, and so you 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 get this this force feeding or this avalanche of whiteness shoved down your throat to the point that you're nobody. You're a nobody. Yeah. You're a nobody. Right. It's all there's to it. And basically speaking, mm. white folks to me who took over the country, this land, they had to make someone a nobody to be a somebody. That that was the to me the philosophy. We will make we will divide you based on the way you look. We'll we will we will matter you will not. And people asked me one time, why do they have Black Lives Matter? Because Black Lives never mattered. If Black, yeah. lives, if black yep. lives have ever mattered, if we ever mattered, you wouldn't have a need for Black Lives Matter. <laughs> you wouldn't have a need for Black Lives Matter. You wouldn't have a need for Black. Come on, put, put two and two together. Come on. <laughs> yeah. There you have it. Damon's story, right? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Damon, I love you. I hope I get to meet you someday. I really enjoyed my time with you and getting to know you, and I'm glad that I know you. Um, Damon's Nonprofit, the NAACP, if you do not know what that is, it's the National Association for Advancement of Colored People. It is the largest and most preeminent civil rights organization in the entire nation. I will put up links. Um, They have, uh, you can donate and their objectives is to ensure political, educational, social, and economic equalities of all citizens to achieve equality of rights and eliminate race prejudice among the citizens of the United States, to remove all barriers of racial discrimination through democratic processes, to seek enhancement and enforcement of federal, state, and local laws, securing civil rights to inform the public of adverse effects of racial discrimination and seek its elimination and to educate persons as their constitutional rights and to take all lawful action to secure exercise thereof. It is amazing. Um, It's a perfect nonprofit to donate to. If you are feeling big feelings right now, just please just spend some time and read about the NAACP and the history and donate if you can. Um, They're pretty amazing. Just like Damon. As always, my nonprofit is Rahab Sisters here locally in Portland. I They have done some amazing things through this quarantine, and they are serving the guests the best that they can through Radical Hospitality, and it's amazing. You can follow them on Instagram. I'll leave links up to everything. Again, thank you so much for leaning in and listening, and I hope that you felt touched. I hope that you felt moved, and I hope that you have a deeper understanding 
of what it's like for uh, different kinds of people in our nation right now, because it's a really big deal, really big deal what's happening. It's actually one of the biggest things that's ever happened in our history of living. We get to witness this and we get to choose to be better. So I hope that's your choice. Um, Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. And I love you.